Hello, and welcome to season six of the Second Chapter Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy, and I am so, so, so excited to be back bringing you amazing stories of women who have changed their lives and or careers after the age of 35. As my regular listeners will know, I am on a mission to shout to the world that women do not become invisible, but have stories to tell at every age, and to remind you that it's never too late to start your next chapter. Please subscribe and tell a friend to subscribe to the podcast. Secondly, I'm publishing a new newsletter. Same vibe as the second chapter podcast, positive stories of female power, the second chapter news, and a quote or two to get you thinking. I won't spam you, expect it every couple weeks, and I'm sending out the second chapter stickers to the first 100 subscribers. Sign up at thesecondchapterpodcast.com. This week, I'm speaking with Kyra Coates. Before we get started, I'd like to mention that this episode carries a content warning for trauma and sexual assault. Don't worry, we don't go into too much detail, but I did want to give you a heads up. With that in mind, Kyra's story is much more than her trauma. She has traveled, studied, lived, and ultimately, she loves. She now flows that love and her unique creative force through her family, her artwork, her community, and her life. I think the more that we tell these stories, and the more that we share the pain that we came from and the place that we can now go to, that is where it will hopefully inspire other people to find that strength within themselves. Hi, Kyra. Thanks for joining me today. How's life going? Things are going well. Thank you for asking. I'm very happy to be here. Good. I have to practice your name, Kyra, because my sister's name is Kira. And I keep thinking, I'm going to slip and say Kira. I'm going to slip and say Kira. I take no offense if you do. I'm used to it. I find that people here, I I get Kirsten all all the time and nobody can seem to get Kristen. It's always Kirsten. And I'm just like, I thought that wasn't that uncommon. In the States, it's so common. Yeah, you never know. I get it a lot. So I wanted to start by talking about how we found each other, because you put such a powerful post on the Facebook page, Pantsuit Nation. Thank you. First, it was visually grabbing because you had a piece of your artwork there. And obviously, once I saw the piece of artwork, I wanted to read what you'd said. And I was really not expecting what I read, which was this, I can't think of another word besides litany of (laughs) life experiences, so many of which started with sexual assault and rape and trauma in your early life. Yes. And the fact that you jumped from that into by 21, you were selling your artwork. I just thought, how does someone who's had so much trauma get to anything by age 21. That sounds like (laughs) such a strange way to put it, but I really thought there was so much that happened that seemed so horrible in your youth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you already by 21 were starting to take control of your life. I'm happy to say that I say that as a reminder to everybody that they are too. I came into this world as an artist. I was literally drawing and painting before I could walk. It was just a part of who I am. And part of that has been this very powerful, just creative urge that constantly moves me. And as I've grown and had many uh, of these traumatic experiences, I actually find them to be very intricately linked. I have found that being a very creative person 
a lot of that is navigating issues such as sexuality and sensuality. And this came in at a young age, whether we call it karma or destiny or what have you, whatever your belief system is, they have been one part and parcel of the same learning. I came into life being very artistic and creative and um, did unfortunately start experiencing sexual trauma at the age of 10 when I was abused uh, by a family member. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunately an all too common story. And naturally at that very formative age, it was really exceptionally confusing to understand what my role was, not only as a girl at that age, a budding woman sexually, what is a role sexually? It feels like when you're 10 years old, it's something that society assigns to you. It's not something, at least that's what it felt like to me, that I was given this kind of role that I was supposed to play and I didn't really have any power or control over what that meant. So trying to navigate those waters was extremely tricky. And I was raped at the age of 14 by a classmate, uh, a boy who was older than me and very discouraged. I went to the police a couple of years later because I really repressed it and then decided it had to come out when I found out that he had actually tried to do the same thing to another classmate and was actually very discouraged at that age to take any sort of steps towards justice by the police because it was so much later, because it was a he said, she said, date rape situation. And more and more, the messaging was coming through of being this sort of submissive individual, oppressing my own sexuality, being abused by my own sexuality. And yet I had this powerful creative force moving through me always. And the only way I could channel it in a healthy way was through my artwork. So they grew and they birthed together. And I think that just being a, a female with female anatomy <laughs> and whatnot, we have these creative forces that move through us naturally. And so it's something that I feel, even though there's certain flavors to my story that are very particular to me, I think it's a very universal journey that many of us take to varying degrees or another. And at 21, when I decided to do my artwork, that was really the only thing that was 100% clear to do. <laughs> right. My artwork had been so truly, you know, the gift. And I'm very grateful to say that I've had a very supportive mother throughout my entire life who held me in high esteem and nurtured my gifts. And she was able to do that through her own past of sexual abuse and her own traumas that these things tend to pass on through families because they're the stories that we tell ourselves. And then they become the stories that we tell our children. So I was extremely supported to, to follow my arts and my passion by my mother. And that's been just an incredible saving grace throughout my entire life. And, and it still is. She's still very supportive. She's my biggest fan. <laughs> so at 21, you are actually selling artwork. In the first year, yes. you're making $36,000 selling paintings, which right. I think, interestingly, is the opposite story of so many artists because right. so many people graft for years and years and never can even sell a painting. Whereas obviously right. this was, I don't want to say instant success. That's not really fair, but you did have some financial success early on. I did. Yeah. And it, it wasn't easy. I will say that in no way uh, to be a professional artist, it's not easy. It's not going to school and becoming a lawyer or having a nine to five job. There's no steady paycheck whatsoever. There was at that age, I was thrust into being an entrepreneur. And, and that is the thing about being a professional artist. You are just as much, if not more, business person than you are artist. <laughs> yes. I tell everybody now I'm about 
65% businesswoman, 35% artist, because that seems to be how my time gets divvied up between what I do. But that 35% really is the best of me. And I've learned to love the other 65% of being the businesswoman. So at 21 years old, I was extremely green. I had no one in my life that had, you know, been an entrepreneur. I definitely came from the background of you get a steady job and you get a steady paycheck and you you follow that. And to me, that sounded unbelievably boring and not at all like what I was supposed to be doing with myself. So there was definitely a lot of growing pains there, a lot of failures, uh, but a lot of successes, which allowed me to make that first year of profit really count. But I contended with that business side because in society in particular and growing up and pursuing the arts, we get fed this message of this kind of very woo and ungrounded and creative spontaneous, reckless person who is an artist. And when the fact of the matter is, I I had to pay my bills and I had to file my taxes and keep my books and figure out where I was going to sell my work and how was I going to market myself and all of these very grounded, level-headed, practical things that don't relate to the typical social view of being an artist. I've talked to a few artists on the podcast, and I definitely think that's one of the things that comes out is how much there is the business side of it if you want to make a living out of it. Right. However, I have never spoken to anyone who has given that up to become a Hindu nun. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me how that happened just a few years later. I Again, this is very tied to my journey of grappling with trauma early in life and expressing myself. I think most creative people feel quite a lot. We just have to by design. We have to feel and be able to take things a little deeper than face value. That is the creative urge to me. There's so much that I experience that I have to express that is beyond just what I see in front of my own eyes. And that's Mm -hmm. really what drives me. And so dealing with deep emotional traumas and dealing with this creative force, learning to live with it and work with it and embrace it definitely motivated me to ask a lot of extremely deep questions about life. What is the meaning of this? Who am I really underneath all of this? I changed so much through childhood from the traumas from taking steps forward to heal, from choosing to be a businesswoman, from moving across the country. You know, I've moved multiple times, traveled to different cultures, started traveling at the age of 19 to really explore what is this human existence about. And I I believe it was around the age of 23, 24, that I had a very powerful spiritual experience. I had been reading a lot about the Native American practices, particularly here in Colorado, where I'm living now, and was very inspired by the practice of vision quests. And are you familiar with the tradition of vision quests in the Native American? Somewhat, but if you want to expand on it a little bit, I'm sure there are a lot of people that it might be the first time they've ever heard of it. The, The way vision quests were undertaken from what I had read, I'm sure this wasn't the case in all indigenous tribes, but is that someone who was at a crossroads in life or needed to take another step forward would partake in a vision quest, which would be you would select a place out in nature that had meaning to you and go out with no food and basically sit naked in the woods or the mountaintop, whichever spoke to you for three days. And that's it. And don't you don't move from that spot, no matter how bored and uncomfortable or whatnot it is. And you open yourself up to receive some sort of vision from the spirit world. 
So reading about that, I said, that's great. That sounds wonderful. Being constantly (laughs) pushed and motivated and driven by this deep searching for meaning in life, I said, "This I've got to give this a shot. So uh, I was living here in Colorado at the time, and I found a place in the western part of Rocky Mountain National Park. And I drove out there, and I did bring a sleeping bag because hypothermia did not sound like a very good part of a vision quest. I have to say, even just the sitting still <laughs> with no food part doesn't sound like that great of a part either to me. The part about being in the Rocky Mountains sounds good. But. Yeah, it was beautiful for sure. Now, the discomfort is part of it because so often we cling to our creature comforts, especially in this modern day and age. We had now, especially more so than even 20 years ago when I did this, we have these screens in our faces and constant entertainment and likes and button clicks and things along those lines, which just feed us this dopamine over and over again, the reward center in our brain of like, yes, more and more, we become addicted. So being able to sit without anything around us to distract us, except your own self is a very powerful practice. That's Mm -hmm. essentially, you know, what sitting meditation is. But then do it naked in the woods, exposed to the elements and being with the body takes it a level up. And I'm definitely somebody I love to push my own boundaries, just love to, as awful as they are, I always get some learning from it. So this was that motivation of, all right, let's push this a little further. Let's take this and find my strength in this. So I went out into the woods and found a beautiful spot. And the moment I stepped out of my car, the vision started. I had this vision in my mind of location that appeared in my mind like a photo negative where the colors were inverted. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think much of it. And it was this apex point of two rivers meeting with a nestle of trees. And it just flashed through my brain without any thought. And as I was walking, this kept flashing into my mind. And I was like, did I see a picture of this or something like that? And then after a couple of hours of hiking in, I come around the corner and there was that very location that I had seen in my mind. And I'd never been on this trail before. So I had literally just picked it out on the map. (laughs) And I sat down in that trail and said, all right, so we have begun. And I'll make a long story short, I had an extremely cold first night. I was very Mm -hmm. uncomfortable and definitely had a very interesting conversation with myself all night long of how stupid I was for trying to (laughs) go out into the woods with no food and be naked in the cold and figure all of this out. And then I had this experience. It was almost, it was instant, actually. It was as if this powerful force from the center of the earth shot up through me while simultaneously coming down from the sky above and meeting. And it rocked me so hard. I started to have seizures in the woods while I was there. And it was the best way I could describe it, though, is it felt like a cosmic orgasm. It wasn't painful. It was absolutely blissful. But I lost all control of my body and was just timeless and convulsing on the ground. And when things finally calmed down, what I experienced was this extremely profound connection to everything around me to the point where it was as if my nervous system had extended beyond my body and was connected to everything else. I could feel the birds flying in the sky. I could feel the clouds swirling. I could feel the trees growing. I could feel every little droplet of water bouncing over the river. To the, It was so overwhelming. I was just in tears and crying. I could feel the force of the mountains moving up out of the ground. The interconnectivity and the simplicity of it fit together perfectly like pieces of a puzzle becoming a complete whole. And that was just 24 hours in or 36 hours in. And at that point in time, I was like, I'm done. I got everything that I need. And I walked out of the woods just crying constantly in gratitude for being exposed to this incredible vastness of 
the beauty of how everything was one, you know, everything was working together in this complete whole. And I hopped in my car and started to drive home. And it was like being on the wildest roller coaster I've ever been on because the mountains felt like they were moving underneath me. I could just feel the momentum of this energetic force that propelled life forward. And I was driving going, ah! while driving through Rocky Mountain <laughs> National Park at about 10 miles an hour because I couldn't go any faster than that. And when I came back home, my entire life was completely different. And I couldn't even sleep indoors for a couple of weeks because I felt cut off from everything that I had felt. And suddenly I realized that I had been holding a very limited view, which I wasn't critical of myself for that, but it just something had, had busted open. And I had no idea really what had happened to me at that point in time. And I started looking for answers. Instead of looking for meaning, I had been shown the meaning. Now I was looking for answers in terms of why did this happen? What is this now? Like, where, where do I go from here? What is life about? And I ended up just a few months later meeting a spiritual teacher. And she, it was a very synchronistic, I guess is the right word to say, mm -hmm. but I, I had met one of her students just while I was swimming in the pool. I'm a swimmer and started talking and he mentioned her name and I ended up having dreams about her that evening. And then I was invited to go to one of her retreats and suddenly she had answers. And in her presence, I started to feel that great vastness that I had felt out in the woods on my vision quest. But she started to give me a language as to what it was that had happened to me. Her spiritual tradition was from the East. She had an Indian background, so a lot of Hindu flavor in what she was offering. But she considered herself very interfaith. So that was very appealing to me, too. And just suddenly pieces started to fall in place. And the experience that I had was so profound and offered so much clarity that the rest of the world and the rest of what I was doing seemed rather muddy. And so I said, well, I think I just need to pursue this 100% because this is clearly going to lead me in the right direction. So just six months after I met her, I sold absolutely everything I owned. And I said, I'm just going to give myself 1,000% to this path. Will you take me on as you know a nun in your community? And, and she said yes. And that was how that happened. So how does that go from... And I don't want to say back to normal life, like right. what you're talking about when we're not having these profound experiences and sitting in front of screens. And obviously this was a while ago, so the screens wouldn't have been quite as prevalent. They were not, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you come back from something like that? Or do you come back, but just in a completely different way? Oh, completely different. Yeah. I, and I think that what the biggest shift that happened for me was suddenly my life stopped seeming as if it was just mine. And that was the big difference, I think. And, and there's an element of maturity, I think, that happens for all of us at that point in time, whether it be if you have children or you, you get in a relationship with someone or you start thinking beyond yourself. And I was at that age in my early 20s where, and I'm learning how to become an adult. And mm -hmm. that was, that just basically kicked my butt in that direction of being like, it's not all about you, Missy. Like you're a part of something bigger. And, but for me, it was showing me that all of this creative energy and everything I had felt and experienced and depended on, it wasn't about this little Kyra. It was about something so much bigger. So my place in the world was bigger. And it was to be, of service in a sense of, I couldn't help but after experiencing this profound interconnectivity of everything, like feeling everybody's pain and feeling the suffering of the world, 
And I always had a very strong drive for social justice. Even in high school, I was involved with Amnesty International and different environmental groups and things along those lines. But there was this vision of we have to fix the world. There's something wrong with the world. And what's my place in it? But now it was more of how do we uplift people to understand compassionately how we are all connected and all of our actions and everything ripple forward. I have kids now and I talk to my kids about this, like with what's happening in Ukraine, for example. It's affecting our daily life, yet that's on the other side of the world. We don't know anybody that lives in Ukraine. We don't know anybody personally that lives in Russia. And yet the actions of what's happening over there is touching us. So I think in terms of a spiritual experience opened me up to how deeply the feelings and the pains and everything really ripple forward and affect our world on such a grand scale. And somehow my role was with that. And I felt like the only way that I could find my place in service of the world was to dive in completely and see why was I shown this? Like, why was I given that mm-hmm. vision? What, why me? Why did that lead me to where I was there? So I just went all in. <laughs> so you were living celibate for three years yes. as a nun. You went yes. all in. What was next? So I lived as a nun for three years and I lived in this community. And I call these three years my years of spiritual boot camp. Living a monastic lifestyle is really extreme discipline. And we would wake up at four o'clock in the morning. We'd meditate for two and a half hours every morning to start the day, living in community. Oh boy, living in community is just a blast, let me tell you. From your eye roll, I don't think that you mean that literally. (laughs) Oh, it's challenging. We choose our families and we all have our family dynamics. When you're thrust into living with community, it's like family dynamics. And oftentimes a lot of people you just might not even like. Yeah, personality clashes and whatnot. And the interesting thing about being in that, spiritual community is your, I was living with people where all of us were very focused on this extreme goal to reach enlightenment as if it was this thing that we had to trudge our way up this mountain to get to and flagellate ourselves and squeeze ourselves and clean ourselves and whip ourselves and purify ourselves. And if I meditate this hard, then suddenly life will no longer be suffering. And if I, if I say this many mantras and if I wear these white clothes and if I shave my head, then I'm pure enough to where suddenly everything is beautiful and pristine and amazing. And after several years of that, I began to realize that is actually not the way it works. Well, it reminds me, I was just telling someone last night that with my first experiences of yoga, I didn't do any other kind of athletic, if you will, activity. I didn't do Mm. sport. And I tried to make yoga my competitive thing. If I work hard enough that I will be the best at yoga. And it's like (laughs) the opposite. It's the opposite of what you're going through. Right. Exactly. Right. Which is just to be with what is, right? Yeah. And experience yourself. That was very much what it felt like in the ashram that I lived in. We were very much just trying to be as holy as we possibly could. And I found it to be pretty ironic because if you look at a lot of the Eastern traditions, such as Hinduism and Buddhism, and Buddhism is actually born from Hinduism, so they do share a lot of similarities, but yet it is different in many ways. But if you look at these traditions, it is very much, which yoga comes from, it's very much about being in the present moment and being with who you are and, and that that is all you need. 
But in the West, in our capitalistic society, we're driven to produce more, make more. Our culture was born of what is called the Protestant ethic. That's what the United States was founded on. Mm -hmm. And the Protestant ethic teaches that the harder you work and the more that you do, the more you will be rewarded by God in heaven. Yes, the closer you are to God. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So what happens a lot in our country is we'll take these views like yoga of going and being with your body and experiencing the present moment. And we'll put this Protestant ethic on top of it and be like, damn it, I'm going to be the most enlightened. I will be the most pure. I will be the most bendy in yoga class. And we be- it turns into this competition with ourselves to be more than what is. And I got to that point where I realized that a lot of what was being fed to me and a lot of what I was believing really was just a, a mixture of cultural identities and cultural perspectives. And having taken the time to travel the world like I did, I've traveled to Africa and India and Tibet and Nepal and South America and all of these places, I realized that our cultural truths very often we take as absolute truths when that's not it. The fact of the matter is the human condition is the only only absolute truth that we live and that we all love, we all suffer, we all grow old, we all die. And I guess we could say we all pay taxes. That is the one thing they said is the <laughs> death and taxes. Death and taxes. But in terms of the grander scheme of things, I was living in a situation where I'd isolated myself from the rest of the world and tried to create this very spiritual, holy sort of persona, which had the was the opposite really of what I was going for, which was to find that interconnectivity. And so I left the ashram and immediately went and started studying at a university called Naropa University. Mm-hmm. It's a very teeny college that is actually here in Colorado. It's based out of Boulder. And it was founded by a man named Chogim Trumpa Rinpoche. And he was a Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhist Rinpoche that came to the United States in the 60s and was wildly radical. This was right when um, the great diaspora from Tibet was really happening through the 50s and 60s from China. So many of these great masters were coming to different parts of the world and for the first time bringing these Tibetan Buddhist teachings. And He was extremely, he had studied at Oxford University. He was very visionary and set up this education program that was based in contemplative education, where instead of going just reading out of a textbook and regurgitating back what you learned, you actually had to go in and practice what you were learning. So I went there and was so curious about everything I had learned in the spiritual tradition. And I had seen people in that community I was in have psychotic breaks. I saw other people just reach these profound states of bliss. And I myself, had reached very profound states of consciousness that I didn't know were possible. And yet it still seemed very confusing to me because the answers that I'd been searching for before were given to me in a very cultural context. So I wanted to dive in a little deeper and see what else I could find. So I studied, my focus of study at that university was on the psychology of enlightenment. So I ended up getting a dual degree in psychology and religious studies and really exploring the states of mind. Like, what does this mean? Like, when we think of the word enlightenment, how does that relate to what here in the West we generally study the mind as through the lens of psychology? So a lot of Jungian psychology and Freudian psychology and things along those lines and seeing how they married each other and how they worked together. And I got my degree there. I had gone to art school before, so this was like my second 
my second attempt at school. Yes. <laughs> I'm familiar. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Many of us go down that road. I have so many years of school and just a, a, like a degree to show for it. But it's been a grand journey. And I realized that what the motivating factor was, the foundation through all of it is love. It's just very profound love. If there's any one universal language and one universal truth that we all have, it's love. And whether that be familial love or the agape love, which is that kind of grand, unconditional love for humanity as a whole, this is the one truth that we can all land on. It's the foundation of compassion. And every religious tradition teaches this. And so when I left Naropa, I did end up traveling down to South America and I met and married my now ex-husband, but, you know, my husband at the time. And we came back to Colorado and I had two beautiful daughters. So that was my chosen way to express this love. And this was part of this creative urge that was always moving me coming through. I was a very sexual person. And part of this was going back to my sexual trauma and really, you know, grappling with that. What did that mean? And now I had spent all of these years being celibate, but there was still hanging in the air this unresolved sort of pain that had existed because of that abuse. And I left it behind when I became a nun. I was like, I don't need to deal with that anymore because sex isn't even going to be an issue for me. Now I'm a nun, you know, and that's some <laughs> form of denial right there. It really doesn't work that way. <laughs> it doesn't go away. The trauma doesn't go away just because you decide not. not to engage with it, I guess. Exactly. And I had, before I had even married, I'd fallen in love with somebody else and had a relationship and ended up being forced into getting an abortion by an accidental pregnancy. And when I say forced, he didn't hold me at gunpoint, but the threat of violence, the threat of you'll be on your own and I won't support you and, and all of that and just the harassment and the pain and the suffering, I felt I had no choice. And there was, that was the old trauma that I had denied coming back to the surface. And it was coming through appropriate to my age, which was now in my late 20s, of, again, your you are not in power. This yes. is not your situation. And this was the story that was coming through once more. And as much as I had tried, I had tapped into these great profound states of bliss and, and felt this deep interconnectivity and chased this idea of enlightenment so much, I could not run from this story and this pain that had repeated itself over and over again in my life from that first time when I was 10, when I was molested to when I was 14 and I was raped. And, and so that, that came through again. And there was this experience of really recognizing there's no escaping the human condition. But it's interesting that you can look at it, that, that there was so much trauma, but that you kept seeing that the, the human condition also contained love and that the fact that you could come around to that at all I don't want to say as impressive to me, that doesn't sound like the word I want to use, but just the fact that you could continue to open yourself up to the idea of love. I, I, I think you were giving me a compliment, so I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> I think that, I, and, and this is, I think, why I ultimately chose the path of motherhood is because I had a very wonderful mother who just bathed me in love. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to, that to me was the most powerful love that I had felt was at that time in my life was the love from my mother because it was so unconditional. If you look at myself 
and my mother as individuals, we are as different as you could possibly be. Like people would say she had me as a daughter to challenge her. She was a very conservative person who was very private and somewhat prudish, dare I say. And I came in like this wild hurricane of free-spirited sort of rule-breaking madness that hadn't could not be held down. Truly, from day one, I just was this, it was that creative force again coming through that could not be put in a box, no matter how hard everybody tried, everybody else in my family. And the grace of my mother's love is that she was able to see that and accept that and say, and it didn't make it about her. She was the most staunch advocate for me. I remember one day when I was a nun and I went to visit her and my stepfather in Idaho. Idaho is a very conservative state. And I'm wearing my white robes. I have a shaved head. I would wear this red dot in my forehead. Like very unusual looking individual for this culture. And I was speaking with somebody I was sitting next to on the plane. And we get off the plane and we're walking through the airport. And this woman who I talked to walks up to my mother And she says, do you support what your daughter is doing? You know, she was clearly very Christian and fundamental Christian and was absolutely horrified by what I had done. And she was a kind person. She wasn't cruel or anything. She said, do you support what your daughter is doing? And my mother, who was five foot three, this little tiny meep of a person, she stood up as tall as she could. And she goes, I support everything that my daughter does. (laughs) So that was what I was given the gift of was this motherly love and it inspired me. And I pray every day now that I can be half as good of a mother as my mother was to me. And so that is what really drove me to dive into that form of love. And it's been the most powerful lesson because if there's one thing that I can say is that my kids drive me absolutely nuts. (laughs) I think most people with kids can say that. Anybody with kids can say that. But then at the same time, they are the most amazing, miraculous expression of life. Every day I'm in awe of them. Every day they just propel me to love more. I remember when my oldest daughter was born, the first two weeks after she was born, I started having panic attacks at night in the living room. I have to go out in the living room and I just breathe because I'm like, I hurt her if I mess this up. Just the, the profundity of the love that I felt for her and the responsibility that came behind it and the realization that I was going to screw up my kid in one way or another. There's no avoiding it. And I saw before me all these stories, the same story of abuse and pain that my mother had passed on to me. I was at risk of passing on to her. And and I, I had to come to terms with that. Like that had to be dealt with. You know, that had to be faced because if we don't take ownership of our suffering, then it just continues like a ball rolling downhill. It just does. And I think it was at that moment that I was actually able to finally step into my true power as a woman and say, I am now going to be the one that creates my life. I will not be the puppet of my life. I will not be the victim of my life. I will not believe this story anymore that life is something that happens to me, but it is something now that I choose to create. Yeah, I think on so many levels... There comes a time in our life when we do that. And whether it's been through trauma as extreme as your own or just whatever has slapped us upside the head throughout our lives and whatever things that have pushed us down and kept us quiet as women, I'm going to say it because it's the generalization, but it's absolutely true. We're constantly being pushed down. And I guess that's 
we were talking about this a little before we started recording, but I guess that's why I'm so passionate about telling these stories as women evolve their lives, because there's something so beautiful about the moment that you say, I'm not going to be the victim. I'm not going to let somebody else write my story. And it saddens me that not everybody gets to that point, but there is something so beautiful about whether it's through age or wisdom or love to be able to say, now I write my story. Exactly. And I think the more that we tell these stories and the more that we share the pain that we came from and the place that we can now go to, that is where it will hopefully inspire other people to find that strength within themselves. So for all the trauma and everything that I have been through in life, I'm grateful for it because if I had not gone through that, I would not have known how strong I actually am. And recognizing and owning that strength and now no longer tying it to the story of pain, but using it as a, a, a powerful creative force. Now I'm making amazing things happen in my life. Now I'm happier than I've ever been. Now I'm creating art that I hope, I believe does inspire people to have this amazing experience, connect with parts of themselves emotionally maybe they weren't able to before. I'll take it back to what I said at the beginning about first noticing you through this powerful image that I saw on Facebook. And it, it is interesting because your artwork is so woman, so I don't even want to say sexual because that's sexualizing the female body, mm -hmm. but it's but there is a sensuality. That's the word I would like to use to all right. of your work. And I think that's another thing that's so interesting, how much you've embraced your own sexuality, your own sensuality, and the beauty of the female body and all of these things that, again, could have been something that you wanted to just not think about, wanted to push down. Well, I think it was that for a while. And I think that it came from not only the trauma, but I think it came from living in the society that we do, mm -hmm. where there's not, there's more so now than ever before, but there traditionally has not been a lot of conversation around healthy female sexuality. Our role has been focused more on pleasing the man. I saw a statistic this morning that something like 80% of women have faked an orgasm at one point in time in their life. Why would we ever do that? A hand up. <laughs> right, right. Why would we ever do that? Why? And I, it was interesting. I'll share something really intimate, which was such a, a mind-blowing, eye-opening experience for me. The first time that I had ever had an orgasm during sex with a man, I was uh, in my early, tw or excuse me, no, I think I was 19 years old, and I was going through a very serious bout of depression. and. I had decided that I was going to kill myself. And I was with my boyfriend at the time and we made love and I had this powerful orgasm and I had never had one during sex. And it shook me so much to my core. I was like, why did this happen right now when I decided that I was going to kill myself? What the hell? And it was what I realized because at that point in time, I had let go of caring about needing to please or do anything like that. And it was that experience that made me say, wait a minute, maybe I should rethink this. Like something, something juicy is happening here. And it was that sexual experience that kept me going. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. And more in the sense that you recognized it as your own, I'm not going to care anymore. Yeah. And that set you free. It set me free. So I was able to release. And again, I, it was when I realized too, and I had always thought at that age that there was something physical that was not happening correctly. Maybe I can't, you know, so many women that can't. 
And there was just this story. There was just this common dialogue throughout society of how women rarely orgasmed and they faked it all the time. And that was just the way that it was. And it was this rare thing. And so that's what I had led, I, I had led myself to believe. Yeah. Maybe I'll be lucky if I have an orgasm. You and, were lucky that you were only 19. Yeah. In that sense. <laughs> yes. I'm grateful about that. And I was with somebody that I trusted at that time too. So that was part of part and parcel of it as well. I was with a boyfriend, but there's this something like uh, another statistic, and please don't quote me directly on this. It's something like oh, over 60% of women still can't have orgasms during sex right now. And there's nothing wrong with our anatomy. There's no everything to me now that I have learned. And if there's one thing that that first vision quest taught me when this force beyond myself took control of my body. That's what it felt like. What it was is it overtook the small me and allowed the larger me to come through and surrender. There's this profound opportunity for us to open ourselves to bliss. And it's just this, a lot, oftentimes these stories about worth, about our role, so to speak, about what we've been told it's supposed to be like that prevent us from doing it. Yes. And yeah, and I can say now, I say this with just the most incredible joy. I've got a long-term partner that I'm with who I love dearly, and we have the most fantastic sex life. Woohoo! Stuff <laughs> of dreams. I'll have I will have and I'm not exaggerating 30-minute long orgasms. I'll have upwards of a dozen like what we are capable and there's nothing special about me physically i don't have an extra g spot my clitoris <laughs> isn't like the size of a penis or anything like that it's normal and this is possible and so much of me getting to this point has been shedding these old stories shedding the idea first of all that it shouldn't be like that if we're if we're coming in there together like we're gonna have a great time well i think that's the other thing too is that for so long it was like shameful and again this is going to the protestant world of right. america right. more than anything right but the idea that there is shame behind it or like you said women were there to please and to serve and yes Yes. When you finally realize that you can be on equal terms and trust someone and all the right. rest, that's what, I mean, like you said, it's not a physical thing. Yeah. I, I never want to discount the physical challenges that many women experience too. I know after my first daughter was born, I had physical challenges too with just the anatomy of having given birth and how that changes the body. And that experience also needs to be honored, but it's the preconceived notions that we have around it that will disappear, that I hope will disappear. This is why I paint what I do. So I'll go to art shows a lot. And for those that have not seen my artwork, it is a lot of naked women in very expressive, they're very inexpressive postures, open and free. My work is very much based on what I say, psychological and emotional experiences of feminine awakening. So it's designed to be open and vulnerable and provocative and sensual, as you said. And I'll go to art shows and I've had so many people, women included, come up and say, I love your work, but I can't have it in my home because I have children. And then I turn to them and I say, I have four children. I have four daughters. And they look at me in shock. What do your children think of this? I'm like, they think that it's amazing. And they've got beautiful and powerful bodies because they see these images every day. Yeah. <laughs> it's in someone's mind that it's a bad thing for a kid to see a human body. I, I Right. A naked form. I've gone to art shows and none of these images are overtly sexual in any way. As you said, they're sensual. But at art shows, people will walk by sometimes and say, well, I guess we know where the porn is. 
And I'm like, show me the porn. I don't see any. I see bodies. Show me. It just isn't, it's not there. But the, our first thought of female body is sex. That's what it is. Yeah. In, in a shameful way. And that negative spitting, show me where the porn is. Instead of what? Look at this. Look at how powerful but, this pose is. Look at how beautiful right. this woman's body is. Right. Look at how strong right. the emotion this evoke. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm grateful that I do get a lot of that, too. In fact, very often I will have people come in and the people that buy my original works more often than not do so because they walked in and they saw the painting and it made them cry. And they burst into tears and it touched some part of themselves that they have not been able to express before. And they found that in the art. And that is what I do and why I live for what I do. Because I've had women crying in my arms because I painted an image of their heart and they were able to feel it in that moment. And that's what we need more of in this world. <laughs> yes, whether it's through a piece of visual artwork or through song or through, I mean, I think that's something that you, you keep saying about the creativity that flows through you. And even the least creative person has that innate sense of when you hear something beautiful, you your heart is touched or of when course. you see a beautiful film, that there's just something there. So I do think there are the people that can give that, but everybody can receive it. Because we are all of that. And that was what I learned 20 years ago when I was naked in the woods. It is what we all are. That is it. That's the stuff of who we are. And it just expresses itself uniquely and beautifully in its own way through each individual person. You know, it's not just artists. It's not just singers. It's the mathematicians. It's the shy people that don't leave their home. All of it. All of it is this beautiful expression of this creative force. It's all divine. So when everything is divine, you can never say that it's less than because it's not like it, it serves its role. It's all interconnected. You cannot have one thing without the other. We all lift each other up. And so if we hold this vision in our minds that we are all sparks of the divine, then that's when we have a beautiful world that's connected through compassion where everyone feels empowered to be who they are fully. And that's what it has to be. That's what it's all about. Well, your artwork and your experiences and the love that you have made the connection in your life has led us to all these really interesting conversations about sexuality and about culture and everything else. But I want to talk about your book because this is the oh, biggest yeah. project that you've had to date. Other yes. than your kids and things like that. Being a person is a big project, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you've written this book, The Journey of the In-Between. Yes. And it's accompanied by large-scale paintings as well. So yes. tell me a bit about the book and how it came to be, because I, I don't think the story of how it came to be is all that wonderful. It is and it's not. It's so the story of how it came to be came from a very painful experience that is also, much like the traumas I experienced before, ended up being one of the best blessings in my entire life. So about three years ago, I was having some mysterious health issues, pain in my body. I had been working part-time. I've always worked part-time on and off with a lot of nonprofit groups because it's something that really moves me. And I'd been working for this women's empowerment nonprofit group called Friendship Bridge. I was doing their marketing part-time. And this organization in particular works with indigenous women in Guatemala and does education programs and microloan programs to have them be financially independent. And even though it was part-time, I was very stressed all the time. I was unable to keep up with my work. I was forgetting entire conversations. We'd have meetings and talk about things. And then the next day, I'd, I'd just completely forget what had happened. 
And I finally ended up going through my partner's love and support. He was like, you need to go. Let's go see our naturopathic doctor. His name is Eric. Let's see what he has to say. And he, through a series of tests that he did, we discovered that I have two of the Alzheimer's genes. These are genes, they're called um, ApoELLs, and everybody has them, but there's this type called E4, where if you have one of them, it puts you at a 30% risk of Alzheimer's. If you have two of them, which only 2% of the population does, it puts you at a 60 to 90% risk of Alzheimer's disease. And this usually kicks in later in life. For me, For some reason, the genes activated early and I was starting to degrade. So I was in cognitive decline. It wasn't full-blown Alzheimer's yet, but it was the beating stages of what could lead to it if Mm -hmm. something didn't happen quick. And this showed up as like pains all over my body and was a very shocking experience. So I was 39 years old when I got this diagnosis and 39 didn't feel old to me. (laughs) As it should not. (laughs) As it should not. It did not. But then being told that suddenly I was losing my mind. And here was the irony after doing decades of, quote unquote, what they call mind training. Here I was facing actually losing my mind and all of this knowledge and wisdom that I felt I had gained over the years to me was suddenly going to disappear. And it was terrifying. And having my children, my youngest daughter was six, six years old at the time. And just being like, am I, what's going to happen? Am I going to slide downhill? Am I going to even remember who my children are in 10 years? What is, the, what is this? What's going to happen? And so in a moment of panic, I had to digest with that. And I said, wait a minute, Kyra, you have all the tools in the toolbox to deal with this. And you know you're more than your minds. You know this. You know, through all the mind training, the one thing that mind training had led me to recognize is that my mind is not who I am. These questions that I had asked myself decades before, who are we? What is this about? What is the deeper meaning? This was it. This was the pinnacle point to really take ownership of that. And I said, you know what I need to do? I need to write something down. So in case it all goes away, I have something to pass on to my children. And my first idea was, I'll write a children's book about dying and I'll add some pictures and whatnot. And so that was how it began. And then I actually realized what I had to offer should be more for everybody. You know, it was something that my unique life story and the ability to overcome trauma and to live a good life and to recognize these absolute truths through the spiritual experiences I have were unique. It's not something that I know a lot of people experienced, at least in in general. And so I wanted to share that. So it turned, what I then decided would be a novella. And I was like, I'll just write a short novel. Then turned into a 300-page book. So. <laughs> wow. So I just finished that. And it is the story. Um, the book is called The Journey of the In-Between. And, it, and the main character, her name is Maji. And she is based on my own life. And in the book, she is a, a 41-year-old woman who discovers that she is dying. She is diagnosed with a terminal illness. We never find out what that illness is because that's not the point of the book. It's not a book about a woman dying of cancer or whatnot. It's a book about a woman who is dying and she's got four daughters and she wants to pass on to her children the experiences she has learned through life so they can understand and embrace her death as Sad, yes, but also beautiful because it will open everybody to something else. So we travel with Maji as she's facing this death and relating to her children while also flashing back through the experiences of her life. And then when she does die, we actually travel with her into the afterlife. And much of what I 
I was inspired by for the afterlife portion, because clearly I'm making that part up, is what I had learned about in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So the Tibetan Book of the Dead is this very seminal text that was written over a thousand years ago by Tibetan Buddhist masters. And in, one thing that I appreciate about the Tibetan Buddhist tradition is that their focus on maintaining consciousness throughout living and dying and being reborn is something they've mastered. And countless masters in that tradition have been able to understand that the process of death is not like we physically go someplace like a heaven or whatnot. We, the body physically ceases, but the mind continues, consciousness continues. And there's an unraveling process that happens when we die where we're releasing our identity. And there's a very profound opportunity in that moment to then when you've released the identity, recognize the infinite, which you are. And time itself collapses into a singularity, which if you go into quantum physics, they recognize that time itself is an illusion. And the Buddhist masters figured this out on their own without quantum mechanics dictating it. And you're in the space of just infinite potential. And if you wake up, if you recognize that's who you are in that moment, in the afterlife, you can do it in this life too, but when you've released the identity and you're in the afterlife, there's this it's a, a very powerful opportunity to wake up to that. And many masters do. And I was very inspired by these stories and wrote that as part of the book as well. So we travel in the book on the spiritual journey with a woman who is dying, leading her children through it to make death be a beautiful experience and open us up to living. Because if there's one thing that I know and I've experienced myself, being afraid of dying is something that keeps us from living a full life. So a yeah. lot of my motivation behind this book was to free ourselves from that fear of death and see that we are so much more than just what we identify with in this lifetime. And there's some solace in that. And you've done all kinds of paintings to go with it. And I know I, the very large scale work, is that the kind of seminal painting of the novel? So all of the paintings in the novel are large. They are all the same size. They're five feet by four feet. And there are 12 of them in the book. And yeah, they follow the narrative a bit of the story and also take the reader through some more of the abstract aspects of facing the mind when there's no body along with it. Having studied these Eastern traditions of Hinduism and Buddhism and whatnot, very often it's quite dry and it's really hard for the Western mind to relate to. And the imagery is very traditional. You'll see like the multi-hand and headed gods and goddesses sitting on lotus flowers and whatnot. And it can be interpreted literally or as like archetypal energies, which is how I've always interpreted it. So I wanted to create something that was a little more accessible to our culture that still brought in these teachings and profound understandings of the human psyche and of consciousness beyond even this, the small mind into the more infinite mind. I feel like... It's very difficult through a podcast to get the, the visual <laughs> of what these look like. So obviously I'll put all the details and everything in the show notes so people can look at them and see. Thank you. They're the explosion of color and sensuality and movement and everything else that goes along with your paintings, because we could talk about them forever, but I, uh, right. they have, have to be seen. <laughs> they do. They do. We could try to describe it, but something gets a little lost in translation for sure. And this series, too, to me, it was very important to have it be a story that's being told because we relate to stories. We can espouse all these con abstract concepts until we're blue in the face. But until we can relate to it as human beings, one to another, it doesn't really have a tremendous amount of meaning. So for me, 
the story was also very important. This is why myth and legend has always existed in societies throughout time. This hero's journey, so to speak. Yes. Because it's what we're all what we're all going through. It's part of the human condition, which is infinite <laughs> and universal. Repeating myself now. <laughs> so is there anything else that you would like to share with people listening? For all the things that I've lived in my life, I think that in general, the message that I hope I can help people find within themselves is that our greatest weaknesses always are our greatest strengths. Our greatest traumas are always the opportunity to step up the most that we can and believe in ourselves. And we have to see that when they come, it's just the other side of the same coin. And if we have that much pain, we can have that much love and that much pleasure and that much joy. Like our capacity is so much more than we give ourselves credit for. And that if we see that we live in a dual world where light and dark are one, then suddenly things become a little bit easier. Yeah, I don't say it as profoundly, but I always say if it wasn't for the sadness you would never know what happiness really was exactly exactly so to be grateful for that life will always bring its challenges and our capacity to feel is really what is beautiful about the human experience well i'm sending lots of love to you and your beautiful family and i hope that things continue to look on the up and thank you so much for sharing your story with me today Things are on the up and I I am healthy and I'm doing well. Just also, I didn't finish with that, that this diagnosis ended up propelling me onto a path of health. I've been healthier now than I've ever been, actually, which is pretty amazing. So, And you've made a beautiful creative work out of it. Which I hope other people can be inspired by. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your story with us and your book with the world. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me on here. It's been such a pleasure and I'm very grateful. I had no idea our chat was going to go where it went and I loved every minute of it. So thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram and sign up for the second chapter newsletter. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.